This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Name an opera in which the lead character sings in every single scene. Here's a hint. The opera was composed in 44 days, and it is not from the bel canto period. Have I stumped you? On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we explore that opera, Tchaikovsky's The Queen of Spades. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. everyone. I'm Dr. Naomi Baratera, and before we dive into our episode for today, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about an exciting travel opportunity. From September 30th through October 9th, 2020, I will be traveling with fellow opera lovers on a cruise through Italy, Croatia, and Greece. Throughout the voyage, we'll visit amazing historical sites, including La Fenice, the Riace Bronzes, and the UNESCO World Heritage Site at Ravello, a city with a rich musical past and present, and so much more. In addition to these exciting offshore excursions, you'll be treated to nightly onboard concerts featuring the works of Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, Verdi, and Puccini. And I'll be providing a series of exclusive guild lectures paired with each performance. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to experience the Mediterranean through the eyes of an opera historian, and I would love for you to join me on this adventure. Cabins are still available. For more information, visit metguild.org travel or call 212-769-7009. I would say bon voyage, but since we're beginning and ending this cruise in Italy, I'll say buon viaggio. Now, into our episode. A mysterious hand of cards, an unhappy betrothal, and a tormenting ghost all come together in Tchaikovsky's riveting drama, The Queen of Spades. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer John J. H. Muller explores this elegant fable and Tchaikovsky's use of musical elements to evoke the world of this haunting opera. Hi, good evening. A um, couple of uh, initial considerations. Uh, Queen of Spades, along with Eugene Onegin, 
very different kind of Tchaikovsky opera are usually the two Tchaikovsky operas that American audiences are familiar with. Um, in recent years, we've been hearing some others here at the Met, such as Iolanta and Mazeppa, but for the most part, our view of Tchaikovsky as an opera composer has really been influenced by just those two works. So I always like to point out to people when I talk about Tchaikovsky and opera, he saw himself as an opera composer, and he actually wrote quite a few, even though most of them aren't done in this country very often. And, uh, but that is something to consider. He really saw himself as an opera composer. In the case of Queen of Spades, this is really an extraordinary musical depiction of twin obsessions, of German's obsession with a woman, and then the obsession with the card hand that would bring him the money to gain the woman, and that one obsession takes over the other, and he eventually goes insane. Um, it's really, again, an extraordinary musical depiction, and that's what I'm going to be focusing on tonight, the more serious side of the opera, although there are other aspects of it as well. Um, I've been thinking, gee, this would have been a great Hitchcock uh, movie uh, in, in some ways, and uh, uh, Tchaikovsky's insight into the psychology of the character, I think, is really um, uh, quite extraordinary. But let's start with the libretto itself. Uh, his brother Modeste had written a Queen of Spades libretto uh, for another composer, a lesser-known composer, and that composer decided not to use it. And so his brother, Peter, uh, was interested in the subject, and that's how he came to write it. It was really his brother's uh, libretto, and then he decided to set it. Um, and uh, it's based on Pushkin, of course, as is Eugene Onegin, as are so many Russian operas. And I think it's worth considering for a minute the importance of Pushkin in the history of Russian opera. Going back to the father of Russian music, really, Aglinka, and all through the 19th century, one opera after another was in part or in whole based on this great Russian author, Pushkin. Um, in the case of Queen of Spades, it's really, some people call it a novel, it's six short chapters. So it's either an extended short story or a very condensed novel. As a matter of fact, one writer referred to the piece as tense as a compressed spring. And Dostoevsky spoke of the cold fury of the work. Now, some of this tension and some of this cold fury gets spread out when you treat the work as an opera and you consider some of the other scenes that Tchaikovsky added to the work. There are really quite a few differences between the Pushkin novel and Tchaikovsky's opera. And while I can enumerate them for you, and I will, if you're keeping score, um, I think it's more important to consider why, excuse me, why these changes would have been made and uh, uh, how you take a short six-chapter work and turn it into a three-act opera. Um, among the differences, first of all, the setting. In Pushkin, this is set in the early 19th century. Uh, Tchaikovsky pushed it into the late 18th for a couple of reasons. One is to distance the work from Tchaikovsky's own day, uh, perhaps thinking the audience might accept it more as being a work from that time period rather than being something uh, from the same century. Moreover, it allowed Tchaikovsky to create a distinction between the music of the 18th century and the music he wanted to write for Germain's obsession. Um, and that does become an important issue. Tchaikovsky loved 18th century classicism. He loved Mozart. 
And by pushing the work back into the 18th century, it gave him an opportunity to write in the style of the 18th century in places, or take music by other people from the 18th century, put that into his opera, and then contrast it with the music of his own day. If he had kept the 19th century setting, he wouldn't have had that ability to make that distinction um, um, as well. Very significantly, uh, German in the, in the novel is not in love with Lisa at all. Uh, he uses her uh, simply to get his goal, and that is to learn the story of the three cards. In the opera, he is genuinely in love with the woman. Uh, it's, it's, again, that's his first obsession in the opera, and of course it makes for a more conventional, more operatic treatment. You've got to have a love story. Okay. Um, also, Lisa in the novel is the ward of the Countess. In the opera, she's her granddaughter, and therefore, as a direct blood relative, she's all the more unattainable for German, and that creates more of the, uh, his despair over ever uh, gaining this particular young woman. Uh, very significantly in the novel, German goes insane. Uh, this obsession drives him insane, ultimately, and in some ways I think it makes more sense. In the opera, of course, yes, he's losing his mind, but he commits suicide at the end. Um, and uh, several scenes are not even in the novel. The scene of the canal, a very important scene, is new, uh, but again it gives you an operatic love scene, a love duet between the two, then the rejection of Lisa, and then her suicide. Um, everything you know, suitable for an opera. Uh, Prince Yeletsky, the man who's going to marry Lisa, doesn't even exist in the novel. Okay, he's invented for the opera, and I'll talk more about him and some, some of the problematic aspects of this character um, a little bit later. And then the ball scene is not in Pushkin either, and that's much of the uh, opening of the second act. Uh, you might say, well then, what is in Pushkin? Well, <laughs> it's this incredible condensed uh, story of the man's obsession, of German's obsession. And uh, some of that is lost when it's stretched out over the entire opera. Um, in the novel, there's just a short conclusion after the card game, which Garamond loses, uh, informing you that Garamond has lost his mind, and in the hospital he keeps repeating, three seven ace, three seven queen. Um, so even in his insanity, he's obsessed with the card game that he lost, and you're informed that Lisa has made a good marriage, and his friend Tomsky has been promoted in the Russian army. Um, and so that's a little epilogue, so to speak, to the story as we learn what happens to the, uh, some of the characters in the work. Um, Modest wrote most of the libretto, but Tchaikovsky wrote, uh, uh, the composer, wrote some, uh, some of the scenes as well. And there's also a certain amount of borrowed text in the work. Um, and uh, as far as composition goes, uh, this is a late piece of Tchaikovsky dating from 1890. He died in 1893. It's not his last opera, but as point of comparison, Onegin dates from 1879, so this piece is some 11 years after Onegin, and uh, he wrote it very quickly. 
I guess he was kind of a compressed spring as he was writing this piece. And it had to be done quickly to get on the stage because he had a commission uh, for the St. Petersburg Opera uh, to uh, do the work. Um, I think it's significant that as he was jotting down ideas in sketchbooks and jotting musical ideas even in the libretto, some of his first sketches are motifs for German's first act arioso. Um, and then also some of the motifs, the love motif that we hear in the introduction, I'll play that in a little bit, um, and various harmonizations of the three card motif are also among the first sketches that he was working on. And this tells you something about um, uh, what he thought was significant in the work. Um, Tchaikovsky saw the German Countess scene in Act Two, the confrontation, um, as being the center of this particular composition. Um, it's a little bit like how we saw the letter scene in Onegin. When he read the letter scene, he knew immediately that's where he would start. And he set that letter scene, stayed up all night, and the work really, Onegin, grew from that. Um, it's a little bit similar in the case of this work. He saw that scene, the confrontation between German and the Countess as the heart of this piece. And it was one of the first scenes, not the first necessarily, but one of the first that he set. As a matter of fact, um, he found the bedroom scene uh, a very harrowing one to work on. And he wrote to someone, a friend of his, uh, it was so terrible, uh, he had so terrible a feeling of horror that it even remains with me now. In other words, long after writing that scene, he still got kind of a shudder of horror uh, because of how important he thought that particular scene was. Um, so along with some highly original music in the opera, there is a pastiche of 18th century style. I you know, have alluded to that, both composed by Tchaikovsky and drawn from other composers from the 18th century. I'm not ac in, um, accusing him of uh, plagiarism. It's simply how he gives some of the, you might say, local color to the composition. Um, as I mentioned, Tchaikovsky had a great love of Mozart. He wrote a, a work for um, uh, a cello solo and orchestra, the variations on a Rococo theme. So this is very much a style of music he was familiar with and enjoyed. Um, and uh, so there's borrowed music and music of his own. Um, I might mention right now, I'm calling him German, the tenor. I may slip and call him Hermann. Uh, the problem is in Russian, he's German, all right? But when you transliterate the Russian, uh, the equivalent name is Hermann. Um, and it's usually spelled with an H, but pronounced in Russian as German. And I'm trying to be excruciatingly correct here. Uh, tonight, so I will, uh, that's the difference. Um, in the handout I gave you, I spelled the name with an H, okay, but I'll be saying it with a G, hard G if I can remember. Um, okay, as far as the premiere goes, at the end of 1890 in St. Petersburg, it was a lavish production, a great deal of period detail, and it was quite successful, quite successful with the public. Uh, most of the critics felt that it was not up to Onegin in quality, especially in terms of the overall work. But whatever they may have criticized in the piece, they were in agreement that the orchestration was excellent. They praised the orchestration, and I certainly would suggest you listen carefully to the orchestra in this composition. 
Um, by the way, if you're interested, it, this was the last opera that Mahler conducted at the Met. You know, Gustav Mahler conducted at the Met the last three years of his life, and this was the last piece he conducted uh, before he died. Uh, they did it in German, um, or should I say German, um, but it, uh, at any rate, uh, that's a little bit of Met trivia. Now, as far as the music to this opera goes, as I'm suggesting, there are a number of different styles employed in the opera. In the parts that focus on the drama, uh, the obsession, uh, the serious side of the work, it's highly original music. Uh, we tend to think of Tchaikovsky as a melody composer, composer of beautiful melodies. Uh, this piece uh, is largely a motivic composition. Uh, what's the difference? A melody is a musical element that's complete in itself. It doesn't need anything else. Um, a motif is usually short, open-ended, capable of elaboration. Uh, Tchaikovsky is, has always gets criticized in his symphonies for his melodic material when he should be using motivic material. Okay? In this particular opera, much of the material, it may be lyrical, but it's often rather short motivic uh, rather than a great big long arching melody. And this is one of the things that makes it a more, for him, a more progressive kind of composition. Um, also, there's the orchestration and the harmonic language. Once again, listen to what's going on um, in that orchestra. And in general, uh, this is an advanced uh, piece compositionally on the part of this composer who's generally not seen as all that forward-looking for someone working in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. But this, this piece is different. Um, and uh, you know, I, I admire it greatly simply from that particular standpoint. Um, as far as this intentional evocation of the 18th century, it serves another purpose, and that is to suggest the larger world outside of or beyond the world that Hermann, ah, I did it, Germann, becomes increasingly isolated. As the opera moves along, we see everybody else in the work, and then there's Germann, uh, more and more isolated from them as he becomes more and more obsessed and eventually insane. And I think that's an important element in the work, uh, the everyday world and then that of German himself. Um, so most of my examples are going to deal with this more uh, advanced side of Tchaikovsky, but do be aware there's plenty of this other side of the piece, the 18th century pastiche and uh, more lighthearted music, and that's a part of this opera as well. And also, in terms of my examples, this is a rather difficult work to um, excerpt and I've done my best, and some of the most important scenes, you really have to hear the entire scene, and I can't possibly do that in a short lecture like this. I can just play a little bit or talk about it and then uh, get you ready for what you will see uh, tonight. So let's start with the introduction to Act One, and the introduction does indeed capture the twin obsessions of Germann. <coughs> And it contains a number of motifs, beginning with the motif that's going to be associated with Tomsky's ballad. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, partway into Act One, Tomsky gives you the backstory, okay, the story of this winning card hand, and that's the first music you're going to hear in, in the um, introduction. And then there's a theme associated with the three cards, okay. You'll hear it very clearly in the low brass, and then his love obsession, very different kind of writing, the uh, 
um, uh, melody uh, that becomes the love theme in the piece in the strings. So he's got these three different ideas that he deals with in the introduction. He's, in a sense, uh, giving you his obsessions in a nutshell. But before going to the introduction, I'm going to play you the, uh, some of the first movement of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, a work that predates this particular opera, because the main theme of that first movement is very clearly related to the uh, opening of this introduction and the theme of Tomsky's ballad. So first, the Tchaikovsky Symphony. theme in your ear and now you're going to hear the whole introduction or most of it to uh, to this particular opera it's about three minutes of music
I think the best parts of this opera in the orchestra um, and uh, from the very beginning um, up to the end. Uh, now, early in the opera, um, Tomsky notices that something's off with uh, German's demeanor. Um, and throughout the work, people keep commenting on this, um, especially in the first act. Uh, he seems strange, uh, like not himself. And uh, the Tchaikovsky describes when he enters that he's dreamy and melancholy. And early in the opera, German has an arioso in two basic sections, and he sings about he doesn't even know this woman's name, he doesn't know whether she has a suitor, um, and yet he's become obsessed with her. And uh, the opening section is largely lamenting in nature, but made up of a series of motifs. Now, they are lyrical, but they are still kind of open-ended and not the traditional big melodic quality we associate with this composer. Um, so let's hear the opening of uh, Germán's Arioso from Act One. <laughs> second half of this arioso, which I'm not going to play, I will simply describe, uh, becomes more and more frenzied. He just cannot let go of this woman. Thinking about this woman, it confirms his obsession. And he sings at the end, mine is the love that kills. All right. So, <laughs> uh, 
And very significantly, the aria does not come to a complete stop. All of a sudden, you hear the various promenaders who were around here. So we get the contrast between his obsession and his growing inward nature and everything that's going on around him. Uh, one of the challenges to the tenor, I think, is to get a sense of where can he take this character? Because he's obsessed from the beginning of the opera, and if you do too much with it or you make you know, overdo things, where are you going to go? Uh, you've got to start a little smaller to build to something. Um, and actually, uh, in the opera, there's a kind of balance in here. He starts with the obsession with the woman, then there's the obsession with the card hand. Uh, for a while, they're a little bit in balance. Then the gambling takes over and then leads to his insanity. It's interesting to see how Tchaikovsky plots this throughout the work, both in terms of the libretto, but also in terms of, of the music. Um, let's see. Um, shortly after this, he learns that she's going to marry a prince. And there's a brief duet that tremendously contrasts the happiness of the prince and the despair of German. And then there's a short quintet where everybody notices his behavior. Even the countess who doesn't know him says, what a strange man he is. Um, so uh, people around him are noticing this, uh, this behavior on his part. Um, now, this brings us to Tomsky's ballad, uh, Ballad of the Three Cards. This is the backstory of the opera. He's talking about the countess when she was a young woman, apparently quite, uh, quite desirable. She was known as the Muscovite Venus. And this is where you get the story of the card hand, uh, and she revealed the card hand to two men, but if she reveals it to a third, she will die. And of course, German would be the third man. Um, so it, it uses that motif you heard at the very beginning of the introduction. It's basically four stanzas uh, with a refrain. Each one has a refrain. In other words, he's telling a story, and this is the way you would do it musically. On the surface, it's really very lighthearted. Nobody believes this story except for German. He's taking it seriously, and this leads to, again, his second obsession. If he can win at cards, get the money, this will enable him, he believes, to uh, rise in the world and therefore get the hand of Lisa in marriage. Now, I'm just going to play one stanza of Tomsky's ballad, uh, but it will make the point, I think. But you heard halfway in the three-card motif, it's hard to miss. 
um, and you'll be hearing it again and again in the opera. Um, at the close of the scene, there's a storm. Uh, yes, there's a uh, weather phenomenon and everybody has to try to get out of the storm, but obviously it represents the turmoil, the inner storm uh, within Germán, um, and he's not going to give up Elisa to the prince. And um, he says at the close, she will be mine, no one else's. So his is the love that kills, and she will be his, no one else's. This gets the opera off to a start. Um, the second scene of the act is in Lisa's room, and she's with her friends, and she's expressing her apprehensive feelings about the coming marriage, uh, the change in her life that's going to take place. Uh, not just marriage, but also she has noticed Germán, and she has some feelings for him. And um, uh, there are a series of musical numbers in here. I'm not going to play any of them, uh, showing her with her friends and the different music they sing. There's a clapping song to try to cheer her up. Um, Garamond enters. Initially, he's rejected, but eventually there's a confession of love on the part of Lisa for him. And at this point, he's torn now between these uh, twin obsessions, and there's a very powerful statement of the love theme that closes the act. Now, act two, the first scene is the ball scene. This is where you get the strongest sense of the 18th century pastiche. Um, and I'm going to play for the play for you the entreacte, that is the introduction to this particular act, very classical in nature, very balanced phrases, and this music then gets used for the opening chorus. That sounds like it might be some little march that came out of the Marriage of Figaro or something like that. And I will let that example stand for 
many other examples of this style of writing that we encounter in the work, especially in the second act. Um, now we have to deal with Prince Yeletsky. Um, was never really turned into a major character in the opera. Again, he's not in the Pushkin story. And uh, you know they might have developed a love triangle here between Yeletsky, um, German, and Lisa. Maybe it's just as well they didn't. It would have blurred the focus of the work. Uh, but he is kind of an, yet another extraneous element in Act Two. Um, he notices that Lisa seems preoccupied, and he sings an aria about his love for her. It's the best melody in the work. It's the most fully melodic, and it's given really to a minor character. Um, so I'm picking up this wonderful tune. Um, it's very popular as a recital piece, as a number in recitals. Picking it up near the end of the uh, of the aria, um, sung in this particular performance by Dmitry Varstovsky, and it was used on uh, Cheryl Milnes's first aria recording. Uh, he sang this particular number. It's very popular with baritones, and you can understand why it's such a great melody, but it's a little bit um, uh, paradoxical that the great melody of the piece is given to this particular character. a ballet scene, and then finally at the end of this scene, the empress makes her entrance uh, to a polonaise, actually. And uh, in Tchaikovsky's day, they could not present the monarch on the stage. So she sensed that she's there, but you couldn't see her. In this production, I believe, you actually see the empress. But we're not living in Tsarist Russia, and so they can present her on the stage. But in Tchaikovsky's day, this would not have been allowed. Uh, now to scene two, again, the heart of the work, the bedroom scene, um, Garamond enters through a secret door. Uh, this music for this scene is some of the best Tchaikovsky ever wrote in anything, I think. He's got three motifs that he treats as ostinato figures. An ostinato is some musical element that repeats over and over again. And one of these figures is a 16th note idea that I think you hear for about five minutes just repeating over and over and over again, clearly a musical image of German's obsession. Then there's a pizzicato figure that seems to be related to the three-card motif, uh, giving a sense of suspense in the scene. 
and then what I'll call a weeping figure in the strings. And he keeps rearranging these three. It's extraordinary uh, simply from a compositional standpoint. And I got to thinking about this and re-listening to it. Tchaikovsky would have been a great film composer. And I don't mean that in any derogatory sense, uh, but this music is really capturing what's going on within Germán and is creating, I think, the tension within the audience as well. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, so let's hear just a little bit of this. of music. Uh, breaking the tension a little bit is the arrival of the countess, getting ready for bed, um, and then we get back to the serious subject matter, the actual confrontation. And uh, this music, which I'll play in a minute, starts with a three-card motif. Then we get a little bit of the music of his Act One Arioso, that was a lament over um, this woman he's obsessed with. And the clarinet plays a very important role in this uh, in this particular scene, and I want you to notice that.
Okay, and the scene goes on. It's much too long to excerpt, but uh, eventually she sees his pistol. He doesn't plan to kill her. Uh, he just wants the secret of the cards, and she dies. And the death scene is very effectively portrayed, again, largely through the clarinet. Um, so he doesn't get the secret at this particular moment. Lisa believes that he's killed her. And that's the close of the second act. Um, in act three, at the start, there's a strong contrast between funeral music for the dead countess and fanfares coming from the barracks. That's where you know, Germán lives. And uh, the sound of the music, the sound of this funeral music, seems to be driving him um, insane. And you have the scene where the ghost of the countess appears and he finally learns the secret of the hand. The harmonic language in here is quite extraordinary very forward-looking. Now, if you want to see this as a supernatural story, um, go ahead. Uh, but I think it's far more effective if you see this as an example of his uh, insanity. That he actually thinks he sees the Countess there, um, her ghost, and she gives him the riddle of the cards, the three, the seven, and the ace. Um, this leads to the scene where Lisa is going to meet with, with Germán. She's going to forgive him. Uh, doesn't now thinks that he did not kill her. Uh, she has a long scene in Arioso, uh, which almost is folk-like in nature, and she's singing about that her happiness is gone, and uh, she's just worn from sorrow. So, here is Carita Matila singing this.
Okay. I'm sure you're aware of the sensation that the Norwegian soprano, uh, Lisa, uh, Lisa Davidson, has created. Um, I heard her at Bayreuth this past summer as Elizabeth and was really very impressed by her. And, uh, and this will be one of her big scenes in, in the opera tonight. The Met is already planning three years ahead using her in a variety of uh, Strauss and uh, I believe Wagner operas and, and Fidelio. Of, of Beethoven. Uh, this leads to a duet between German and Lisa, uh, you know, allowing Tchaikovsky to give some conventional operatic love duet music, but then she realizes he doesn't want to run away with her, he wants to run off to the gaming tables. Uh, his obsession with this card hand and the gambling uh, is overtaking him, the music becomes more and more agitated, and she feels betrayed. And then he rejects her. So it's a, you know, during this point, the obsession with the gambling is taking over his love for her, and he rejects her. She feels that she's lost, that her soul is lost, and so she throws herself into the water and commits suicide, uh, very different from what happens in the Pushkin story. Um, in the final scene, scene three, initially the music is very lively, everybody's at the gaming table, uh, but then German enters uh, with his very faithful view of life that we're all going to die one day or another. Um, and it's Prince Yeletsky who plays cards with him. And uh, German gets the initial, picks the initial two cards, the three, the seven, and then two are put down, the ace and the queen of spades. And German is so certain he's going to choose the ace, he picks the queen of spades. Of course, it's the countess. Uh, that he's seeing in there, it's the wrong card, he loses, all right? Um, and Zhukovsky, in writing about this particular scene, Garamond's death scene, uh, he writes, I pitied Garamond so much that I suddenly began weeping copiously. This weeping went on an awfully long time, turning into a mild fit of hysteria. And he goes on about how he was weeping and his identification with Garamond in a somewhat similar way, he was identified with Tatiana in, uh, in uh, Eugene Onegin. And uh, he began to see Hermann, German as a real human being. Um, and that's what brings about this extraordinary uh, emotional reaction on the part of the composer. Um, of course, uh, German commits suicide. And as he's dying, he believes that Lisa forgives him. And so he sings the love theme of the opera. And that's what you'll hear in my example. And then at the very close, there's a funeral chorus for him, and then a climax on the love theme at the conclusion. Uh, perhaps what Tchaikovsky is suggesting here is that in death, he's coming to his senses and realizes that he was actually in love with the woman, and that's what was important. Uh, but uh, both of these obsessions get dealt with at, in the close of the opera, the card hand, and then, of course, Lisa, whom in his death he believes has forgiven him.
So I would approach this work, as I said at the opening, as an extraordinary example of Tchaikovsky's ability to look into the mind of the character uh, and this portrayal of his twin obsession and the very, for Tchaikovsky, advanced writing that he uses in this particular piece. So thank you for joining me, and you have to rush over to the Met. Thank you. That was lecturer John J. H. Muller exploring the music and motifs that bring to life Tchaikovsky's tantalizing tale of love and obsession. To learn more about our upcoming programs, subscribe to our newsletter by emailing info at metguild.org, and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on your favorite social media channel. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.